0: Greetings students, as always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The New Deal. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Who Was FDR? FDR was the fifth cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, and he was married to Theodore Roosevelt's niece, Eleanor who became a champion of human rights and the downtrodden, and is arguably the most active First Lady in American history, beloved and hated by millions for her stands on civil rights. FDR had come from a wealthy New York family, but he contracted polio in 1921, which caused paralysis and left him bound to a wheelchair. This hardship heavily influenced his personality approach to governing. And as a result, he was more sympathetic to the plight of the people. And because of this, the rich called him a traitor to his class. I will make a note here that FDR actually had a deal with the press to avoid covering his disability, which is obviously impossible in our modern era, where the press has no problem airing your most intimate secrets to the world. Oh, how I hate the 21st century. Anyway, FDR was inaugurated on March 4, 1933, and listen to the clip on the PowerPoint where you can hear his inaugural address. Okay, so did you listen to it? That is where the phrase, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, comes from. Many Americans were willing to put their faith in Roosevelt because, unlike Hoover, he managed to convince them that he felt their pain. This compassion seems to have been genuine, and this aura of compassion was enhanced by the era's most influential medium, the radio. FDR mastered the use of the radio during his presidency with his fireside chats. Most politicians spoke into a radio microphone as if they were addressing a convention hall, but Roosevelt understood that radio allowed him to talk to people inside their homes, intimately and casually, like a family member or trusted friend. But he also spoke to them like they were adults. In his fireside chats, which began only a week after his inauguration, he explained complex issues like the banking crisis to average Americans. He didn't treat the people like they were stupid. He spoke openly and frankly, boiling policy down to key facts to inform the public. Wow, telling people the truth and laying out all the facts in clear and concise language? Well, that's a novel idea. Anyway, during the 1930s, under FDR's leadership, the Democratic Party unambiguously became the party of bigger government in contrast to the Republicans, who still advocated laissez-faire economics and increasingly abandoned their stand for civil rights that had defined the party in the 1860s. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, 100 Days. In order to get legislation through Congress, you need powerful senators with allies on all the relevant committees. In this era, Joseph T. Robinson, the senior senator of Arkansas, is the master of the Senate and he can and will shepherd through New Deal legislation as long as he agrees with it. Robinson is accommodating because he knows Arkansas is going to get a lot of the benefits from these programs. He was able to get FDR's more radical elements heard on the floor, and only Robinson had the power to do that. Many Southern Democrats will oppose what FDR proposes, but Robinson is a great ally he's able to push through this legislation despite the opposition. As a result, Robinson was rewarded for this support. FDR credited him with so much of these successes that he was the first sitting president to come and visit Arkansas as the most popular president of his era. From March 9th to June 16th, 1933, Congress passed and FDR signed a flurry of legislation in what historians have now called the first hundred days. These measures included the following. First, Roosevelt immediately looked to stabilize the collapsing banking system. He declared a national holiday, closing American banks for four days and set to work pushing through the Emergency Banking Act. The EBA would use the Department of Treasury to examine banks after the four-day holiday to ensure that they were ready to reopen. FDR also knew that he had to protect the United States' fleeting gold reserves. So in early April, he ordered all private gold holdings to be surrendered to the Treasury in exchange for paper money and then declared that the United States would leave the gold standard two weeks later. As a result, the United States would not return to the gold standard until February 1934, and even then, it would only remain in place for international trade purposes. His next step was signing the Glass-Steagall Banking Reform Act, which established the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, which insured individual bank deposits up to $5,000. Glass-Steagall also split up commercial banks from investment banks. Commercial banks would now handle people's savings and checking accounts, while investment banks would handle people's investment portfolios. This is so your deposits would no longer be gambled by financial institutions and then lost because of their malfeasance. As a result there was a 60-year period without a major economic downturn until it was repealed in 1999 under Bill Clinton. And since then, the economy has been more unstable, evidenced by the Great Recession of 2007. The next piece of legislation was the Beer and Wine Revenue Act, which legalized wine and beer under 3.2% alcohol, and put a $5 tax on every barrel produced. The goal was to make money and produce jobs, which it did. However, there was some opposition from Southern evangelicals, but ultimately, the 18th Amendment was repealed by the 21st Amendment later that year. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Relief. The aforementioned programs were only the first steps. For the remainder of the first hundred days, Roosevelt and his congressional allies focused especially on relief for suffering Americans. And this all illustrates Roosevelt's leadership style, as Congress debated, amended, and passed whatever Roosevelt proposed. And as one historian noted, the president, quote, directed the entire operation like a seasoned field general. Despite some questions over the constitutionality of many of his actions, Americans and their congressional representatives conceded that the crisis demanded swift and immediate action. In response, Congress passed the Unemployment Relief Act in March 1933. It was one of the most significant actions and helped create the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC. This employed 3 million young men in firefighting, swamp drainage, flood control, tree planting, and park construction. Workers were required to send most of their earnings home to their families, and in the end, it became one of the single largest employers in Arkansas in the 1930s. It was responsible for building roads and national parks here in Arkansas, like the road through the Ouachita State Park In the Ozark National Park. Modern Arkansas would not be what it is without these efforts, and in a very real way, direct federal investment and employment programs took impoverished Arkansas and made it more prosperous for all. Next, in May 1933, Congress created the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the FERA, This provided direct cash assistance to state relief agencies struggling to care for the unemployed. Just one week after passing this act, Congress then passed the Tennessee Valley Authority Act. The TVA built a series of hydroelectric dams along the Tennessee River as part of a comprehensive program to economically develop a chronically depressed region in the South. This would greatly increase the prosperity of the region, especially for those who lived in rural areas. While the government helped to put people back to work, several agencies helped home and farm owners refinance their mortgages through the Home Owners Loan Corporation, which assisted roughly 1 million homeowners with refinancing their mortgages on non-farm homes. The next year, in 1934, Congress would pass the National Housing Act, which created the Federal Housing Association, which provides mortgage insurance loans to the people. The heart of Roosevelt's early recovery program consisted of two massive efforts to stabilize and coordinate the American economy. First, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, which we will talk about in a minute, and the National Recovery Administration or the NRA. In June 1933, the NRA was created, and this law was designed to suspend antitrust laws, which would then allow businesses to establish codes that would coordinate prices, regulate production levels, and establish conditions of employment to curtail cutthroat competition. In exchange for these exemptions, businesses agreed to provide reasonable wages and hours, as well as end child labor and allow workers the right to unionize. This act also authorized the creation of the Public Works Administration. The PWA provided grants in aid to local governments for large infrastructure projects, such as bridges, tunnels, as well as creating schoolhouses, libraries, and America's first federally public housing projects. Despite many advances and a flurry of legislation, the Supreme Court ultimately struck down these acts in 1935. They ruled that the NRA was seeking to regulate all businesses in America, and Congress could only regulate interstate commerce. Furthermore, these actions of the NRA were essentially laws, and they believed that only Congress had the authority to pass laws. Thus the centerpiece of early New Deal legislation, was declared unconstitutional and greatly angered FDR. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Agriculture. As I mentioned before, the other half of Roosevelt's early recovery program was the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, the AAA. If you recall, one of the biggest problems for farmers in the 1920s was overproduction and as a consequence, low prices. So the AAA paid farmers to destroy crops, slaughter livestock, and reduce acreage. The hope was that prices would go up. And they actually did. But then consumers complained about the high prices, and we have to remember, many were still starving. So a number of Americans found it quite ridiculous that as the people starved, Milk was being thrown into sewers, and cattle were slaughtered and left to rot. The AAA also had unintended consequences in the South. Landowners were supposed to share AAA payments with their sharecroppers, but obviously, most did not. And many also tragically evicted their sharecroppers because they no longer needed their labor. Many New Deal programs were administered locally like the AAA, So, Southern landowners usually got away with this. Regardless, the Supreme Court declared the AAA unconstitutional in 1936. Thus, the two centerpieces of Roosevelt's administration have been declared unconstitutional. Overproduction and low prices were not farmers' only problems during the Great Depression. In much of the West, an extreme drought hit in 1933 that transformed agricultural production in ways never seen before. In addition, the widespread plowing and overgrazing of cattle had destroyed much of the grass that held the soil in place, which thus left the topsoil as nothing but dust. As winds picked up, they created massive dust storms, which created the so-called Dust Bowl. This displaced thousands of farmers, including Okies and Arkies, who joined other migrants from the cities and headed to California. This was later enshrined in John Steinbach's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, written in 1939, which you are all supposed to read a chapter of this week. The government was aware of the plight of these farmers and continued to do all they could to assist. So in 1934, Congress passed the Fraser Lemke Farm Bankruptcy Act. This suspended mortgage foreclosures for five years in an effort to help farmers, but unfortunately, the law was ruled unconstitutional the next year by the Supreme Court. However, in this case, the law was actually revised to limit the period to three years and was later upheld. The point is that FDR kept his promise of trying anything and everything to right the economy again. In a world filled with fascist or communist dictatorships in monarchies the united states was one of the few liberal capitalist democracies in the entire world many people wondered if the american system could withstand such a challenge and openly contemplated whether one of these other systems was better suited to the crisis through fdr's leadership he showed the people in the world that liberal capitalist democracies could survive a worldwide economic crisis and ultimately save the country Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Thunder on the Left. While FDR had many successes, early on, his loudest critics claimed he was not doing enough. One critic was Father Coughlin. Charles Coughlin had a national radio program that he used to criticize Roosevelt's failures to do more to regulate banks. He advocated more silver and greenbacks in a nationalized banking system, but by the late 1930s, Coughlin had become so far gone that he abandoned the left entirely and went to the far right, eventually advocating for fascism. Another critic was Dr. Francis Townsend, a retired doctor. He attracted hundreds of thousands of supporters with his plan to pay everyone over 60 years old a stipend of $200 a month. The goal was to provide aid to the elderly who was one of the most poorest segments of society, as well as to keep them out of the job market and spend money, thus stimulating the economy. The last challenger you should know was the former governor and then-senator of Louisiana, Huey P. Long, nicknamed the Kingfish. Long had done a lot of good for the people of Louisiana as governor. He built schools, roads, hospitals, Gave away free textbooks and made Standard Oil pay its taxes. Long began to contemplate a challenge to FDR and promised to make, quote, every man a king with his Share Our Wealth program. Please click the clip on the PowerPoint so you can see one of his speeches. Okay, did you listen to the speech? I think that's absolutely hilarious and a really good way to relate economic inequality to something that a common person could understand. Long proposed that the federal government should confiscate all the wealth over a certain amount, and though the certain amount varied, it was typically over a million dollars a year. Long then promised to give everyone a minimum annual income of $2,500. And as a result, tens of thousands of Americans joined Long's Share the Wealth Clubs. In his potential challenge to FDR, Polls showed that Long might be able to throw the election to a Republican challenger. He was assassinated in 1935, so we'll never know how his prospects might have turned out. I'm going to cut the lecture off here, so please go to the second part of the New Deal lecture. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.